Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to Akrak. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and we're back with another keyword episode. That's right. I have back with me Dr. Jillian Isaac, and we are going to talk about another ABA keyword or keywords. And in this case, it's really pulse oximetry and some of the things that you need to keep in mind of where it may not work that well for you, like methemoglobinemia and carboxyhemoglobinemia. So I am going to turn it over to Dr. Isaac. Jillian, welcome back to the show. Thank you. I appreciate that. So like Dr. Wopaw said, today we are talking about monitoring methods, and this is pulse oximetry. When I was looking through the content algorithm and like what I've done thus far, I realized I haven't really done much in the terms of monitoring, which I was kind of surprised by. So it's time to tackle some of our monitors. So if you're looking at the ABA content outline, which I find residents rarely do, <laughs> it's on page six. It's under physics and monitoring uh, and anesthesia delivery systems. And it says oximetry, co-oximetry, and pulse oximetry. Um, this is kind of a part one because you can't talk about pulse oximetry without talking about carboxyhemoglobin, methemoglobin, and then the drugs that cause that, like nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, and carbon monoxide. And that's all in the advanced content outline. So today I'm trying to focus more on how these things relate to oxygen monitoring. And then the next podcast will kind of be like a part two. We'll go a little more in depth in some of these and some of the drugs and the underlying mechanisms. So in terms of keywords being tested, like I said, I always get this information from open anesthesia, and they used to tell me the years that this was tested, and they don't list that anymore. But if it's on open anesthesia, it's a keyword that is actively being tested from what I can tell. Um, so, yeah, the ABA wants you to know the basics of how pulse ox- Oh, sorry, pulse oximetry works, and then its limitations. And biggest limitations are detecting hemoglobinopathies and then mechanical errors like ambient light, nail polish, non-pulsatile blood flow, et cetera. And the keywords that you're probably going to see most is ASA standards for monitoring, pulse oximetry monitoring, effects of methylene blue on pulse oximetry, and then met hemoglobinemia, the effects on pulse oximetry, how it's diagnosed, um, what can cause it. Um, and that's tested almost every year as well as carboxyhemoglobin and kind of the same thing, origins and treatment, and then its effects on pulse oximetry. Um, before we really get going, I just want to shout out this website that I really like. It's called How Equipment Works. It's written by an anesthesiologist and he goes through like the line isolation, line isolation monitoring, goes through pulse oximetry in a way that makes it just really, really easy to understand. So if you feel like you don't really understand the physics behind some of this, I really recommend that website. Website. It has helped me a lot in understanding more of the complicated physical properties of our monitors. That's so, great. And I will say this this stuff, you know, it's funny. You hear pulse oximeter and you think, oh, you know, I know how that's a, a simple device. I use it every day. I know yeah, how yeah. the number of questions on boards and ITEs and and MOCA that come from this kind of stuff is is huge. Like this is probably one of the more high yield keywords, I think. 
Yeah. And that website's phenomenal. How equipment works. I, I use it a lot. So just a shout out to that. Whoever made that website, I really like it. Uh, so the first uh, keywords we're going to cover, keywords one and two, are ASA standards for monitoring and then pulse oximetry monitoring. So just to give a little background, there's two basic forms to hemoglobin. There's oxyhemoglobin and deoxyhemoglobin. The pulse ox actually shines two wavelengths of light from one side of the detector of that little bandage looking thing to the other. The first wavelength is red and that's 650 nanometers and it is absorbed by deoxyhemoglobin. And then the second is infrared and it's around 950 nanometers and it absorbs oxyhemoglobin. So the pulse oximeter is going to calculate the absorbance at 650 and the absorbance at 950 and then create a ratio. And then based on that ratio, it gives you a number of saturations. So for example, if there's no light absorbed at 650 and everything is absorbed at 950, then the ratio is 101 of oxygenated to deoxygenated, so the reading will be 100%. But if everything, all the lights absorbed at 650, which would be the deoxy hemoglobin, and then nothing's really being absorbed at 950, that would be the opposite, and the pulse ox would be, unfortunately, reading zero and be very stressful. <laughs> uh, but there are limitations to pulse ox imagery. <clears throat> Ambient light can interfere. Um, you need pulsatile blood flow. Uh, there are certain nail polishes that actually absorb at 650 or 950, and it can look like deoxyhemoglobin. And then hemoglobinopathies like methemoglobin or carboxyhemoglobin. Now, I regret to tell you that you have to know these numbers. Like there are some things you just have to rote memorize, and this is like one of them. And so I'm going to ask these questions in two different ways because it's like almost guaranteed you're going to get this type of question on the board. I had it on my boards. Um, so the first one is, what is the wavelength of the red LED impulse oximetry? Yeah, and as oh, you said, sorry, A, I got to go through the numbers. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> A, 660, B, 740, C, 905, D, 940. And I'm kind of laughing at myself because this is the type of thing that you just have to know. It's like a flashcard thing, right? Like right. flashcard it, Anki it, like just you got to keep going through it over and over. You just have to memorize it. There are some mnemonics, like I think for this one, sexy darling is one, right? So I, that isn't exactly a mnemonic in that every, not every letter there has a meaning, but the sexy part is 600. And then the darling D-A-R-L is deoxyhemoglobin absorbs red light. So that may help you um, to remember that it's about 600 where deoxyhemoglobin absorbs red light. So this is asking about red light and that is 660. So right. A is going to be the answer. Right. So you need to know that it's red and that's deoxyhemoglobin and then the number. <clears throat> so the next question is, what is the wavelength of infrared LED and pulse oximetry? A, 660, B, 740, C, 905, D, 940. And again, here, if you if you had remembered that the two important ones are 660 and 940, you would know that right. this is, if you remember Sexy Darling and you know that, that the red light is going to be um, deoxyhemoglobin at 660, then you're going to know that infrared is 940. So you could get it that way without having to, you know, fully memorize it. But D is going to be the right answer here, 940. <laughs> And sometimes I've seen it listed as 650 and 950, but whatever is like right around those numbers. So right. I'm going to ask this basically the same question in a different way because I think it's like that important to remember these numbers. So at what wavelength does oxyhemoglobin absorb light? So the same numbers again, A660, B740, C905, D940. Right. And as you just said, the, uh, oxyhemoglobin pairs with infrared light at 940, 950. So in this case, 940. Yeah. And then again, at what wavelength does deoxyhemoglobin absorb light? A, 660, B, 740, C, 905, D, 940. And this is back to our darling, D-A-R-L, deoxy absorbs red light. So um, we're back to looking at deoxyhemoglobin, same as red light, which is the uh, 660. Yes. 
Will it help you be a better anesthesiologist knowing these numbers? Probably not. Does the board want you to know them? Absolutely. <laughs> so commit them to Good memory, at least, through, <laughs> at least through the advanced exam. That's right. <laughs> okay. So the next question, is the accuracy of oxyhemoglobin saturation determined by digital pulse oximetry is affected significantly by each of the following except? And I know we're getting away from the accept questions, but obviously my bank of questions are from older questions. So here we are. So A, it's movement of the patient. B, isovolemic hemodilution to a hematocrit of 23%. C, position of the operating room light. D, intravenous administration of methylene blue. E, infusion of phenylephrine. Yeah. And so here, there's a few you can kind of just get rid of, right? So hopefully you know that methylene blue affects your pulse ox. You've probably, depending on your level of training, you may have given it and seen that happen. So you can get rid of that. Um, you've almost definitely, if you've ever been with a patient with a pulse ox on seen that significant movement can affect it. So you can get rid of that. Um, the operating room light, certainly depending, I think probably on the various wavelengths, but that, you know, probably can, um, you may have seen that have an effect. Um, and then, you know, phenylephrine is an interesting one. Certainly if a patient is hypotensive enough, they're not going to read they're not going to get a pulse ox read. So I'm not sure if that's what this answer is getting at, but certainly if you had an inaccurate reading because of significant hypotension and then you gave phenylephrine to bring the blood pressure up, that might improve it. Um, there may also be a direct effect of phenylephrine that I'm not aware of. And Jillian, I don't know if you know that, but given uh, that we can I, get rid of, yeah. Yeah, I think the explanation was that you just get that vasoconstriction and it's going to be more in like the capillaries. And so you might not get that pulsatile flow that you really need or enough flow to get a good reading. Oh, interesting. So, and that's the opposite of what I was saying. So I guess if you had a good flow and you gave enough phenylephrine, you might decrease your flow to the capillaries and then actually get a worse read. So that's interesting. Um, so I think you can get rid of A, C, D, and E, and that leaves you with B, isovolemic hemodilution to a hematocrit of 23%. Um, and I think that's because you're still going to have hemoglobin is still going to absorb at the same wavelengths that it would anyway. And so uh, it should still be reasonable. Right. And I think once you get to hematocrits below 23%, then you may not get as good readings. Like if you've ever done a trauma, it's really hard to get a great peripheral pulse oximetry reading. Right. All so right. so, the that, next, you're, so you're saying at, at that level, 23%, you're still okay, but getting lower, yes. much significantly below that, you can start to have inaccuracies. Exactly. All right. So next question is kind of in a similar scenario. Each of the following will cause erroneous readings by dual wavelength pulse oximeters, except A, carboxyhemoglobin, B, methylene blue, C, fetal hemoglobin, D, methemoglobin, E, nail polish. Right. So we know, and we'll get to this more, but certainly you can probably guess from the introduction to this topic that carboxyhemoglobin and methemoglobin both can um, affect it. So we can get rid of choice A and choice D. Methylene blue, we already talked about, so you can get rid of choice B. And then nail polish, you also mentioned already, we can get rid of choice E. So we know what's left is fetal hemoglobin, um, which can be a little tricky because you might think that it's a different kind of hemoglobin and it might mess it up. But in this case, that's what we're left with. Yes. And this is actually a really common question. So I look through multiple sources when I do these podcasts. I look through uh, ACE exams. I look through old ITE exams. There's like 10 years worth of old ITE exams. I look through some question books and you start seeing trends, right? You see the questions come up over and over. So this is one that comes up over and over. So this is a very similar question, but just from a different bank of questions. Pulse oximetry accurately reflects uh, saturation of oxygen in which of the following situations. So administration of endocyanine green, administration of methylene blue, carboxyhemoglobinemia, 40% fetal hemoglobin concentration, methemoglobinemia. 
right. So we kind of went over this already. Basically, any dye you put in the blood, in this right. case, endocyanin green, methylene blue, these things are going to affect it. And so will carboxy and methane globinemia. So that leaves us with, and we've already just talked about this, fetal hemoglobin is similar enough that it won't affect it. Yeah. And it, I think the board wants you to know that because I've seen that question come up time and time again. And this one is a, a trickier one, but I have seen this one also, is which, being, which color of nail polish would have the greatest effect on the accuracy of dual wavelength pulse oximeters? A, red, B, yellow, C, blue, D, green, E, white. But honestly, yeah. I had no idea. If I didn't have the explanation, I would, I would have guessed. <laughs> yeah. So if it were me, I would I would guess between red and blue, right? I think that's yeah, red or better. blue because they're in yeah. the spectrum. Yeah. Right. right. So, but other um, than that, it would have been a guess. But I have the answers in front yeah. of me. <laughs> I, I'm going to admit that I wouldn't know between red and blue. Um. So yeah, Jillian, why don't you tell us? So it is actually blue. So the accurate function of dual wavelength pulse oximeters, and I'm saying dual wavelength, but that is really standard pulse oximeters are the two wavelengths. We'll talk a little bit more about co-oximetry. There are some monitors that do four or 10 wavelengths, but those are called co-oximeters. So it's a little bit not needed to say dual wavelength pulse oximeters, but the explanation has that in there. It is altered by nail polish. And blue nail polish has a peak absorbance similar to that of adult deoxygenated hemoglobin, so near 660 nanometers. So blue nail polish has the greatest effect on the SpO2 reading. Uh, nail polish causes the artifact and fix decrease by reading these devices. So you, what I do to get around it is I... I don't know how to explain it without showing a picture, but I turn the probe so it's more on like the nail bed and not on the actual nail itself. Because I find so many people come in with like acrylic nails and you can't even just use remover. It's like impossible to get that nail off. So you either have to do the ear or put it on the nail bed and that usually solves the problem. Yeah, so exactly. And the other thing you can do is turn it sideways so that it's shining through the side instead of the top to bottom. It's shining side to side in the, yeah, in the that's finger. What I, if you saw my hands right now, that's what I'm, <laughs> right. I'm trying to... Say it without saying it, yeah. Right. And if you have an ear probe, those work great. Or you can even, uh, you know, depending on the size of the nair, you can actually put an ear probe in the nose and, and measure the tip of the nose as well. So there's a variety of ways um, to get around this, though it can be hard to come by those those ear probes if you don't have them in your ORs. So then the next question is severe hypoxemia is commonly defined as a PaO2 less than 60 millimeters of mercury. This correlates to an SpO2 reading of what? A, 87%, B, 90%, C, 93%, D, 97%. So this is, you know, hopefully first year of med school, right? You learned the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. The numbers I remember still from back then are 27 and 50. In other words, a PO2 of 27, give or take, is equivalent to a 50% um, SAT. And then uh, 60, a PO2 of 60 is equivalent to a 90% set. Um, and so here, obviously, this being a PO2 of 60, um, it, the question says less than 60, but obviously that is a huge range. So I'm right, going to assume right, that means right. 60. Yeah. So a PO2 of 60 is correlates 60, to a set of right. 90%. Yeah. And I think that's just good to review because it's easy to forget those numbers or not think about the the curve. But once you start getting below 60, then it's that precipitous drop. The 60 and above, you'll you'll be 90% or above. So moving on to our next keyword, which is methylene blue. So methylene blue has an absorption peak of 668 nanometers and therefore absorbs most of the 660 nanometer pulse oximeter light emission. And this is interpreted by the pulse oximeter to indicate the presence of reduced oxyhemoglobin or deoxyhemoglobin. And so the SAT will go down. It's um, commonly used, when do we use methylene blue? In uh, 
if you're looking at your like ureter surgery or like bladder surgery is you want to maintain the integrity of the urinary system, you're going to give methylene blue. I do it in OB when they want to make sure like everything's okay that they didn't hit a ureter and you do it in like cysto cases. So we give it fairly commonly. Yeah, uh, you can also give, can methylene- give it for- Oh, sorry. I was going to say you can also give it for profound hypotension, like post cardiac surgery, if you are refractory depressors. So it's kind of a rescue or potential rescue for basoplegic syndrome after cardiac surgery specifically. I did not know that. And it's also an effective antidote for methemoglobinemia. And like I said, we'll go into part two because there's like we could really do a deep dive on some of these. But I think for right now, it's good just to know that it can be an antidote for methemoglobinemia. And you can also sometimes use it to treat cyanide poisoning. Uh, so first question about methylene blue is which of the following would result in the greatest decrease in the arterial hemoglobin saturation value measured by the dual wavelength pulse oximeter? A, intravenous injection of indigo carmine, B, intravenous injection of indocyanine green, C, intravenous injection of methylene blue, D, presence of elevated bilirubin, E, presence of fetal hemoglobin. All right. So we already know fetal hemoglobin doesn't affect it, so we can cross that one off. Um, I think you mentioned earlier that elevated bilirubin tends not to um, have a big effect, so we can get rid of that one. Then it leaves you with dyes. And honestly, what I would say here is that we just talked about um, nail polish and how blue is the worst. And so if I had to pick, I'd probably go yeah. with methylene blue. Yeah. Hey, that's a good... I never even thought about that. <laughs> methylene then blue and methylene blue. So, right. It does. It, it, and this is actually a funny story. This was like two or three years back in July. I was precepting July CA1s and we were going to give methylene blue. And I said, it will affect the pulse ox. So it's just important to know that that dip is from the methylene blue. And they asked me how low it goes down. And I was like, well, let's wait and see. And in my head, I'm like, I usually see it go like 90, maybe 80. We gave methylene blue and it went down to like, 30. It was such an uncomfortably like low number. I'd never seen it get that low before, but it can really, really affect it. It's probably, I wonder if part of it is where your IV is and where the pulse ox is in mm-hmm. terms of like the reading and how, how much it goes down. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so the next question is, which of the following is the most appropriate treatment of met hemoglobinemia prior to emergency surgery? A, hydroxocobalamin, B, methylene blue, C, oxygen by face mask, D, packed red blood cells, E, thiosulfate. And as you mentioned, methylene blue is an effective, safe treatment for uh, met hemoglobinemia. So I would go with B here. So that moves us into our next keyword, which is methemoglobinemia. So methemoglobinemia is a state in which the ferrous, which is Fe2 plus iron of heme within hemoglobin, they're oxidized to the ferric state, which is Fe3 plus state. And sometimes they get that nitpicky. Like I've actually seen them ask between ferrous and ferric and what that is. Um, these ferric hemes are unable to bind oxygen. And as a result, the oxygen dissociation curve is shifted to the left, making it more difficult to release oxygen. Now, met hemoglobin has the same absorption coefficient at both red and infrared wavelengths. So that's going to result in a one-to-one ratio. Remember, we talked about earlier how it, it calculates that ratio and then gives you a number. So when you have 50% deoxygenated with 50% oxygenated, the reading will be 85%. So someone who has met hemoglobinemia, regardless of what their actual like PaO2 is or how well they're oxygenating, it's going to read 85%. So it can either be falsely high or falsely low, kind of depending on the clinical scenario. 
Again, we're going to have a part two to this, but just broadly, there are two types of met hemoglobinemia. There's congenital and then there's acquired. The one that well, we would probably see more are the acquired, and it's usually from drugs. So the drugs to think about are prilocaine, benzocaine, nitrates, um, sulfonamides, dapsone, phenytoin, uh, I can never say Reglan, the generic form, and anti-malarials like chloroquine. And I bring up, so benzo, benzocaine is interesting because when I was a resident, we had something called like hurricane spray. Do you remember hurricane spray? Did yep, you ever have it? You used to yep. use it for like awake fiber optics. It was amazing. It was like 10% and you just sprayed it back there. But what we found is all these like, <laughs> we caused all this methemoglobinemia and magically hurricane spray went away. I haven't heard about it in probably like what? 10, 15 years now, but it's still on the list of the drugs that they want you to know about in terms of that hemoglobinemia. So it, it probably happens a little more than we think or realize. Um, yeah. I don't know if you see it more in the ICU. It's not something I see directly in the ORs a lot, but you probably, you may see it more in ICU settings. It's still very rare. I have seen yeah. it. I think um, you're going to see it much more on tests than you will clinically. Yeah. But you know, the other thing you can see is a case description of a patient having an awake intubation who get, and they, they won't even name it. They'll just say, you know, patient right. was topicalized with spray mm-hmm. to the mouth for a, or for a, an awake intubation. And, you know, subsequently was intubated and your pulse ox reading is, you know, 85% despite hundred yeah. percent oxygen, you know, what's going on. So yeah. they may not say hurricane spray, but if they give you a scenario where a patient was intubated or, you know, had, uh, had an awake intubation, I would have that on your differential. Yeah. That's actually, a fantastic question. And I have seen that before. And going through my databases, I didn't find one, but it does trigger a memory of seeing questions just like that. But the questions I did find is, uh, this is the first one, which of the following is the most likely adverse effect of prolonged intravenous administration of nitroglycerin? A, cyan methemoglobinemia, B, hemolysis, C, methemoglobinemia, D, neutropenia, E, thrombocytopenia. Stay with us. We'll be right back with my response to that question in just a sec. Hey folks, this is no joke. Last night, I'm sitting there eating dinner with my family. We're having Factor and my daughter, my oldest daughter looks up to me and she says, Daddy, how do they make this taste so good? It's like we're at a restaurant. Even my two younger daughters who are incredibly picky eaters are loving every meal we get from Factor, every single one. They even eat the vegetables that Factor makes without complaining. In addition to 35 different options every week, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more, there are 55 add-ons you can choose from. We added on some breakfast options, and the kids love those too. The convenience is amazing. Two minutes, and the food is ready to go. Honestly, I'd eat these things for the convenience, even if they weren't so good, but the incredible thing is that it's both super fast and so tasty. I wouldn't have believed it until I tried it, but trust me, I'm not making this up. And they're super flexible. You can change your order up anytime, pause, or reschedule. Head to factormeals.com slash ACRAC50 and use code ACRAC50 to get 50% off. That's code ACRAC50 at factormeals.com slash ACCRAC50 to get 50% off. Hey, folks. Pattern is a disability insurance company, and they know that you want to be confident and in control of your finances. In order to do that, you need to buy disability insurance. Pattern understands the problem is that researching insurance is complicated and time-consuming, which can make you feel overwhelmed and unsure of who to trust. Pattern knows that your time is valuable, and they believe that doctors have more important things to do than worry about insurance. That's why thousands of doctors have trusted Pattern to help them understand the insurance they're buying. Here's how they do it. You go in, you request your quotes, 
You compare your options and you buy risk-free. So request your quotes today at PatternLife.com. That's P-A-T-T-E-R-N-L-I-F-E.com. So you can stop wasting time and feeling overwhelmed and instead save money and spend time on the things you love, being confident your family and income are protected. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. All right, and we're back. Yeah, so, um, you know, hopefully you know this. I would say that for your um, potent vasodilators, there are three commonly used ones, nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, and nicardipine. And you need to know um, that nicardipine, uh, that nitroglycerin um, will cause, uh, over a long um, period of time, which is what this question is asked, will call, can cause methemoglobinemia. So that's the answer here is C. And nitroprusside can cause cyanide um, toxicity. So those are the two big ones you need to know. Now here, um, you know, the other thing they didn't put in, which was good because it could have thrown you off, would be it can obviously cause a significant headache over time, which is, you know, um, something that we know about nitroglycerin as well. So next question is prilocaine is not recommended for obstetric regional anesthesia because it A, can cause fetal methemoglobinemia, B, has a very short duration of action, C, is not metabolized by the newborn, D, is the most toxic of the amide local anesthetics, E, produces a longer motor block than sensory block. Interesting. Yeah, I think this one is a little tricky. So, um, you know, you probably know that prilocaine is not, um, you know, there's nothing special about it to make it the most toxic. I mean, that's a pretty, uh, you know, when you're thinking about test taking kind of skills, that kind of absolute statement, you know, prilocaine is the most toxic. Uh, it should give you a little pause. So if you weren't sure that you could probably cross that one out. Um, and, uh, that is probably it. You might be having to really just kind of guess amongst the others if you had no idea. Um, but you should know that prilocaine, I believe, was one of the ingredients in hurricane spray and was what led to hemoglobin, methemoglobinemia. And so if you know that prilocaine can cause methemoglobinemia, then, you know, I think A is probably your best bet here. You might get caught up on does it cause fetal methemoglobinemia, but you know we just talked earlier about how fetal hemoglobin and um, adult hemoglobin aren't that dissimilar, and so it's probably reasonable to think prilocaine can cause fetal methemoglobinemia as well. Yeah, and I think in the the context of obstetric regional anesthesia, there's probably a reason why they're asking it. I actually did a deep dive on this because I do OB anesthesia, and I was interested. And what I found in, in general is like prilocaine is more likely to cause methemoglobinemia than some of the other locals. I think it's because of it. It also has an active metabolite and uh, it affects kids more than adults. And it's probably just like a concentration thing. And uh, you're more likely to see the methemoglobin in, in smaller people. And so we've gotten away from using it. And that was the, the explanation that I found. 
Okay. Great. Next question. This is a little long. So it's a 62-year-old man. He's brought to the ICU. He's brought to you, Dr. Wopa. After elective repair of uh, an abdominal aortic aneurysm, his vital signs are stable, but he requires a sodium nitroprusside infusion at a rate of 10 mics per kilo per minute to keep the systolic blood pressure below 110. His uh, SAO2 is 98% with controlled ventilation at 12 breaths per minute and an FiO2 at 0.6. After three days, his SAO2 decreases to 85% on the post-oximeter, chest X-ray film, and results of physical exam are unchanged. Which of the following would most likely account for this desaturation? So before I read the answer choices, one thing that I encourage my residents to do, it's a really good um, just test taking strategy is to cover the answers and try to answer in your head. And if you can answer in your head, you're, that's really probably the answer. And then you just match up the answers. But so you probably have kind of figured out the scenario, especially given what we're talking about, but I'll read the answer options. A, cyanide toxicity, B, thiocyanate toxicity, C, oxygen toxicity, D, thiosulfate toxicity, E, methemoglobinemia. Yeah. And so I, when I said earlier, I point, I didn't know this one was coming, but I pointed out that, um, Sodium nitroprusside uh, has the toxic effect of causing cyanide toxicity, but it also can cause methemoglobinemia. So how would you know? Because those are both choices here. And the key, as you said, is you wouldn't even need to look at the choices because if you just saw that the SAT is sitting at 85%, that should just immediately clue you into methemoglobinemia, whereas that would not be the case with cyanide toxicity, right? Cyanide toxicity is a problem with the electron transport chain. So you have the oxygen, you just can't use it. And so your SAT would be 100%, but you would be, you'd have a lactemia, you'd have, you know, a metabolic crisis, um, whereas your SAT would be fine. Here, your SAT being 85%, that points you toward methemoglobinemia. Right. And then just to complicate it even more is you can see thiocyanate toxicity if someone has renal failure on nitroprusside infusion. So again, we're going to do a deep dive on the next podcast and some of these things because there's all these like pathways that we, <laughs> you need to be familiar with. But I think this is a really tricky question because a lot of these can occur in this scenario. It's a matter of parsing out which one is the right one. And I think you nailed it with that 85% is the key there. Uh, all right. The next question is in a patient who was receiving nitroglycerin intravenously after a coronary artery operation, peripheral oxygen saturation is 85% and the PaO2 is 200 millimeters of mercury. The most appropriate management is administration of A, exchange transfusion, B, hydroxycobalamin, C, methylene blue, D, pure oxygen at three atmospheres, E, thiocyanate. Right. You should immediately see if the PaO2 is 200 then your SAT can't be accurately telling you it's 85%. So something's wrong, and that 85% should clue you in. And by the way, on these questions, they don't always give you 85%. It could be 86%. It could be 84%. Right. So don't <laughs> think it has to, right. yeah. yeah. to be exactly 85%. But um, if you see something in that range, you should definitely think methemoglobinemia. And then this, I always thought, was the easiest antidote to remember, right? Because it sounds like it. Methemoglobinemia, methylene blue. Methylene blue. That's, right. the, that's the right. antidote. So that's what yeah. you want to give. And then the other one you're going to see is they may not they may not give you the pulse ox. So I pulled this question because they actually don't give you the pulse ox data. You kind of have to figure it out without that. So this is a 19 year old college student is brought to the emergency department, cyanotic and incoherent. The respiratory rate is 48 per minute. Pulse is 140 beats per minute, and blood pressure is 140 over 85 millimeters mercury. The only history obtainable is he was at a party and suddenly felt sick. Cyanosis persists despite administration of pure oxygen by mask. 
A venous blood sample is chocolate brown. The action most beneficial to the patient is too. Um, before we do that, I remember like this really tickled my like, oh, chocolate brown blood. <laughs> like, what, what is that? So the options are A, intubate the trachea and control ventilation. B, perform bronchoscopy to treat foreign body aspiration. C, obtain a pulmonary ventilation perfusion scan. D, administer methylene blue intravenously. Yeah. And so that chocolate brown blood should be a trigger for meth hemoglobinemia. Um, And so that should clue you in here. You're right. They don't give you that 85%. They're not giving you the pulse ox, right. Right. But they do (laughs) describe ongoing cyanosis despite pure oxygen. So not that that's the only thing that can cause it, but you know, that might make you think something is, is going on here. They're not, they're getting all this oxygen and yet still cyanotic. Um, And so yeah, here you would give methylene blue to treat the methemoglobinemia. Now, what happened at this party? I don't know. What are they trying to? Uh, I had to look it up, and it's um like whippets, like the, the oh ni- nitrous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, I think that's what they're called. I actually had to. <laughs> I I literally I think I googled like what causes methemoglobinemia from like a party or something. <laughs> so funny. Yeah. Okay. Good party. (laughs) (laughs) So the next keywords then are moving on to carboxyglobinemia and then co-oximetry. So carbon monoxide gas, it diffuses rapidly across the pulmonary capillary membrane. It binds to hemoglobin with an affinity 200 times that of oxygen to form carboxyhemoglobin. And so um, carbon monoxide is going to decrease the oxygen carrying capacity and oxygen delivery to, to tissues, causing marked cellular hypoxia and acidosis. Carboxyhemoglobin has an absorbance very similar to oxyhemoglobin. So you, in these scenarios, you're going to get a falsely elevated SAO, SAO2. So with methemoglobinemia, it can be falsely high or falsely low, depending on the scenario. But in this scenario, you're going to have a falsely elevated SAO2 when it's present in the bud. Now, the term co-oximetry actually refers to a device that was going to use four wavelengths of light. So remember, we talked about dual wavelength pulse oximetry, which is standard pulse oximetry. It's just the two wavelengths. So in order to pick up on some of these hemoglobinopathies, you actually need different wavelengths. So there are devices out there that I was reading about that have like four different wavelengths, and there's one coming on the market that actually shows 10 different ones. But also historically, co-oximetry could be used to describe just like an ABG to look at the difference between your FIO2 and your PAO2. So it's a little confusing because it can refer to either one of those. But I remember because co-oximetry CO carbon monoxide. So you're going to be using it in like carbon monoxide type things. And I was asking Dr. Wolpot before we started if they're actually using them in the ICU and you said you're trialing not, it. Not yet. Yeah, we're, they're, they're being trialed, but we're not regularly using them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I remember when I was a resident, we, we had the option of sending a blood gas with co-oximetry. And that would give us not only the PAO2 and FIO2, but it would give us the um, percentage, if it was there, of um, carboxyhemoglobin and methemoglobin. Right. Yeah. I wonder if they have something in the ED, because that would probably be the most, like where you're going to use it the most would be in the emergency room. Right. That's Uh, interesting. So here's some questions there. Which of the following is most likely to be associated with a falsely elevated SAO2 as measured by pulse oximetry? A, hemoglobin F, B, carboxyhemoglobin, C, bilirubin, D, fluorescein dye, E, methylene blue dye. Yeah, so dyes in general we've already talked about should lower your set, so they should give you a um, falsely low set. Um, bilirubin, we said, doesn't really have much of an effect. Um Fetal hemoglobin, same thing. And so we're left with um, carboxyhemoglobin, which uh, we just talked about, and that's going to give you a falsely elevated level. Yep. All 
right, next question. A 33-year-old woman with 20% carboxyhemoglobin is brought to the emergency room for treatment of smoke inhalation. Which of the following is least consistent with the diagnosis of carbon monoxide poisoning? A, cyanosis. B, a PaO2 of 105 millimeters of mercury and oxygen saturation 80% on initial room air ABG. C, 98% oxygen saturation on dual wavelength pulse oximeter. D, dizziness. E, oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve shifted far to the left. Right. So remember, when you have carboxyhemoglobin um, from carbon monoxide poisoning, you're going to bind that oxygen really tightly, and you actually get that cherry red appearance. So you get the opposite of cyanosis. People don't look cyanotic. They look really oxygenated. (laughs) Right. They look red. Um, and so that in and of itself, you can know from that that A is the right answer here because cyanosis is wrong. And this was asking which is least consistent. Um, the other thing, so a PaO2 of 105, um, because you have the oxygen in the blood, but an oxygen sat um, of 80% because uh, on the ABG, because that's actually measuring the, the um, hemoglobin, not the carboxyhemoglobin. So that's accurate. That's the accurate right. reading. Right, exactly. 98% oxygen sat on dual wavelength pulse oximeter. Again, that's just going to pick up the both of them. So it's going to be high. Dizziness um, would be appropriate because you're not actually delivering enough oxygen to tissues. And then, um, as you said, it's the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve is going to be shifted to the left because of how tightly the carboxyhemoglobin binds oxygen. And then the other question that's really common with carboxyhemoglobin is treatment, right? So the most effective treatment of severe carbon monoxide poisoning in a two-year-old child is A, IV administration of methylene blue, B, IV administration of thiocyanide, C, IV administration of thiosulfate, D, exchange transfusion, E, hyperbaric oxygen. And I think here, really, you want to give, depending on the level, just giving 100% oxygen will, uh, you know, help. But if it's high enough, then hyperbaric oxygen uh, is even more effective. Yeah. I was actually reading about that. Where I did my intern year in New York City, we actually had a hyperbaric oxygen chamber. So we would get all these patients transferred to us. I don't know. The literature seems to be tipping to the the idea that it's not as beneficial as we thought it was in these scenarios. That 100% oxygen is probably just fine in most scenarios, unless it's like really, really severe, like this, like a severe, like in a kid, like this one. So, uh, so one last question about the treatment. So which of the following statements concerning carbon monoxide poisoning is true? A, diagnosis is excluded if the PaO2 is greater than 300 millimeters of mercury while breathing 100% oxygen. B, increased inspired oxygen concentration accelerates displacement of carbon monoxide from hemoglobin. C, methylene blue decreases binding of carbon monoxide to hemoglobin. D, pulse oximetry accurately reflects hemoglobin oxygen saturation. E, tissue oxygen delivery is normal. So again, um, they want to know which of the following is true. And we just kind of talked about this, that breathing high levels, 100% oxygen or even more than 100% if you're in a hyperbaric chamber, will accelerate displacement of carbon monoxide from hemoglobin. That's why those things help. So B is the right answer here. The other ones um, all are uh, therefore not true. So a is really tricky because it's a kind of a double negative, which is not true. It's not true that the diagnosis <laughs> right, is excluded. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, and then methylene blue, um, you know, does not uh, does not unfortunately help here. Um, and we've been through the other ones. Yeah. So you can see really similar trends when they're talking about carboxyhemoglobin and methemoglobin. Really, they're going to be talking about methylene blue and treatments. And you see it kind of throughout all these questions. And, and then. I should have put this last question here. Well, not the last question, but under this keyword, 
question under methylene blue, but um, cyanide toxicity may be treated with all of the f- following drugs except sodium nitrite, hydroxycobalamin, sodium thiosulfate, D-methylene blue. Right. And so methylene blue works for methylene globinemia, but not cyanide toxicity. So not going to help you here. The other ones are all treatments for cyanide toxicity. And then the last keyword that I wanted to bring up, because I saw this in looking through question banks, and I don't really remember reading about it in the board when I was studying for the boards, but I probably did, but it's sulfhemoglobinemia. So sulfhemoglobin is the product of abnormal irreversible binding of sulfur by hemoglobin and red blood cells, rendering them incapable of transporting oxygen. Symptoms include cyanosis. So you get cyanosis in this one, as opposed to carboxyhemoglobin and then constipation. So sulfhemoglobin has a greater absorbance at 660 than 950. So it causes an abnormally low pulse ox reading. So kind of like um, methemoglobin, sulfhemoglobin also does the same thing. So this is the type of question you might see. A 27-year-old patient with a 10-year history of Crohn's disease is scheduled to undergo drainage of a rectal abscess under general anesthesia. His pre-op medications include uh, prednisone, sulfasalazine, and cyanocobalamin. He has no known allergies and is otherwise healthy. Before induction of anesthesia, the patient is noted to have central cyanosis, and the pulse oximeter shows an SAO2 of 89%, which does not increase after the administration of 100% oxygen for two minutes. His ABG is as follows. PaO2 is 490. PaCO2 is 32. His pH is 7.43. His SAO2 is 89%. The most likely cause of these findings is A, presence of sulfhemoglobin, B, presence of methemoglobin, C, presence of cyanohemoglobin, D, presence of carboxyhemoglobin, E, blood gas error. Right. So with a PaO2 of 490 and a SAT of 89%, something's wrong. Um, you're probably here going to be deciding between methemoglobinemia and sulfhemoglobin. Uh, you know, 89% is a little higher than it should be if it was methemoglobinemia, right? It should be 85% or plus or minus. This is tricky because 89% is, is close. <laughs> but I think they're really getting at that there's no there's no known reason here for him to have methemoglobinemia, um, plus that number's a little high, whereas sulfhemoglobinemia, he's on sulfasalazine. Right. So they're trying to get you to make that connection. Yeah. And so uh, sulfhemoglobinemia is usually caused by drugs. And one of the big ones is sulfasalazine. And that's, I think, really what they're getting at here. And I like this question because you're having to think about methemoglobinemia, carboxyhemoglobinemia, and then its effect on pulse oximetry, which has been the whole point of this podcast, Um, but not as common a test question, but I liked it. I thought it brought it all together in the end. So for take-home points, for pulse oximetry, you're most likely to be tested on the wavelengths of absorption for oxy and deoxyhemoglobin. It's important to know the mechanical and physical limitations of pulse oximetry, and that includes the hemoglobinopathies, almost guaranteed a question on methemoglobinemia and carboxyhemoglobinemia, especially the drugs that cause them and then the treatment. And like I said, in part two of this, we're going to go through um, nitroglycerin, nitroprusside, and go more through the pathways, the cycles of how these met, how the hemoglobinopathies can occur and how they're treated. Great. Fantastic. Jillian, thanks so much. Let's turn to the part of our show where we make random recommendations. You've always got good ones. What do you got for us today? So I know I normally recommend books, but I'm actually going to go with Top Golf. <laughs> have you been to Top Golf? <laughs> yes, I have. It's a lot of fun. It is so much fun. It, it's if you go on Tuesdays, at least in Baltimore, it's half off. So it's 40 bucks for two hours. 
Um, and you can have up to six players. So I take my kids and their friends. I mean, $40 for two hours of top golf, but it's fun because it's like fun for kids. It's fun for adults. You can do it virtually. You can do it like real, more competitive, like more fun. So like everyone likes it. Like it's something that everyone in my family can actually enjoy doing. So I'm going to go with top golf. We've gone like three times in the last month. <laughs> nice. And in case people don't know what it is, it's a driving range, but um, you know, they've, it's covered, it's got good, you know, food and drinks that are better than the usual nothing or vending machine you get at most driving ranges. And then the balls have trackers on them and you can play all these games where, you know, you shoot for a certain target or you, you know, see how many, uh, who can get closest to a given uh, flag or, you know, whatever you can actually track where the balls go and then score points. So it's fun to not only practice your golf shots, but also, uh, play some games. Yeah. I, rec- I recommend Angry Birds because there's no skill necessary. Just whack the <laughs> ball. Hope for the best. Nice. Um, all right. I'm going to recommend a TV show um, that I recently heard about and have just binged and, and loved um, called Silo. It's on HBO or what is now called Max. Um, Silo is uh, really, really a great, interesting show. The premise is kind of sometime in the future, the remaining members of the human race, 10,000 people or so are in a deep underground in a silo. They don't know why they don't know what happened. And, um, they're trying to figure it out. It's pretty, pretty, it's really, really just interesting. It's suspenseful. It's action packed. Um, unfortunately it's just the first season and I didn't realize that. So I binged up to now <laughs> I'm current and now I have to wait because they're only released once a week. Um, but they're, they're really, it's a great show. So check it out. Silo on max. All right, Jillian, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Yep, thank you. All right, hopefully you got as much out of that as I did. That was really fantastic. Let us know what you thought. Go to the website, ACRAC.com, where you can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. If you are a fan of the show, you can follow us. We're on Twitter. We are on Facebook. We are on Reddit. And we are on Instagram. I'm at Jay Wolpaw on Twitter, and we're at ACRAC Podcast, and you can find us on all those other platforms as well. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make donations anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking up Jay Walpaw on Venmo. Thank you so much to those who have already made donations and become patrons. We really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic ACRAC crew. Dr. Brian Park is our tech lead. Sonia Amanat and Chris Reese are our social media managers. Dr. April Liu and Edison Jang are our production assistants. Thank you so much for all that you do. Our original ACRAC music is by Dr. Dennis Kuo. You can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.